Well, good morning, Element. Welcome back to the strict live stream. I'm sure you're enjoying it because we are too. Anyway, from Lompoc to Vandenberg Air Force Base to Orchid to Santa Maria, Napoma, Rua Grande, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Texas, Alaska, uh, Kuwait, Belgium, uh, Ohio, Oaxaca, Mexico, welcome to you. I have one thing to tell you about today, and that is at 12.30, if you would like to come after the 11 o'clock service at 12.30, we're actually going to do a socially distance outdoor prayer for Brit and Wendy Stanley who are leaving. Uh, they've been members of Element for a very long time. They've been very involved. And if you would like to come to say goodbye, we'd love to welcome you to that. It's going to be short, simple, quick, and easy. But it's just a nice kind of way to say goodbye, you know, just on that video you just saw from them right now. Also, what we've noticed is a lot of people are watching the live streams throughout the week. So it may not be Sunday morning for you. So whenever you're watching this, hey... Great. Uh, if you would like to, there's an app. It is called Uversion. And if you open up and get this app called Uversion, you click on more and then events. Uh, we will come up by GPS in your smartphone if you're in our area. If not, you type in 93455, and that's how you'll come up, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, everything that goes with this morning's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, and this is the reading of God's Word. This is Acts 22, verse 22. And it says, up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. I know, sounds just like our political discourse today. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for being a gracious and good God who loves us and calls us to yourself. And I ask that we would be a people who listen to the words that you've spoken to us in the scriptures, that you would grow us in ways that we see people around us that don't know you as lost and have compassion and grace for them. And that you would teach us, like Paul, to be a people who understand those around us so we could step into different situations and speak of you where we are in ways that are comprehensible. We ask you to teach us to love you and how we live out the life that we have in you. Amen. Amen. So this is week 28 of our series through the second part of the book of Acts. The second part of the book of Acts essentially follows the Apostle Paul. Uh, there are some excursions here and there, but it essentially follows him. Uh, someone last week said, how long are we going to be in this second part of Acts? Well, all the way up until six weeks before Christmas. That's how long. But you know what? When you're done with Acts part one and Acts part two, there is so much in this that you're going to know about the book of Acts. You could probably write your own little commentary on it. Now, I tend to write my messages pretty far in advance. And when I do that, other people will come in sometimes and they'll share things like Eric did last week. And I don't know what Eric sharing when I write my message because it's so far in advance. So I will give you a little background of, you know, kind of cover a couple of things he said. But other than that, we're going to kind of move on and look at the story of where Paul goes today. So where we're at right, at right now is that Paul has been attacked in the temple for not really doing anything except following the temple rules. But some people have some preconceived ideas about who he is and why he's there. And so they stir up the crowd to really just beat him up. Now, Paul is in Jerusalem at this point because God has called him to go there. God has also warned Paul that when you get there, you're going to have some trials and hardships. And because he was having trials and hardships, his friends knew he was as well. And so they said, no, 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 don't go. Kent Hughes says about this, We need, like Paul, to have hearts that because of a passion for souls and for God's glory are willing to run the risk of unwise decisions, or really what other people would see as unwise decisions, like 
Paul going to Jerusalem in the middle of a bunch of people who don't like him because they've never really understood him. And today, some people are afraid to risk anything to speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want a life free from sin, but we also don't really want a life of hardship either. It's like we don't really want to be a sinner or a saint, just kind of have our life on cruise control. But if we live that way, we're never going to have hearts that have a desire that burn for those around us that don't know Jesus. We're never really going to step into and change our communities and the world. We're never going to know what it really means to trust God in the midst of this thing that we call life. And so today what we're going to do is essentially follow the story of where Paul is. This is kind of what we're doing the next couple weeks, is follow the story of how Paul goes through what he goes through. So if you like stories, these next few weeks are really kind of for you. Uh, Paul loves Jesus above everything else, and that can get him and us into trouble sometimes. So two weeks ago, Paul comes into Jerusalem. The Jerusalem elders are worried because a lot of people don't like him. They think he's stirring up trouble. So instead of talking to these people about the gospel and resetting them, they go to Paul and say, hey, go to the temple and do this thing to try and placate these people. And Paul, because it's not sinful to do this, he says, okay, I'll do it. So he takes four guys into the temple for purification rituals. Again, that's part of Paul's heritage. He knew what it was. But while he's there, Paul is going to get attacked. Paul is in Jerusalem. He's celebrating this thing called Pentecost. Uh, Luke in Acts never says if Paul actually made it there or not, but based on the crowds in Acts 21 and 22, he probably did. During this time of religious festival, it is very easy to get people all worked up. So the crowds are going to get into this really big frenzy when they see that Paul is there. They're like, that's the guy who's trying to talk against our temple and say our religion is nothing. We should get that guy and get rid of him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, that the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen was a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And this is what kind of starts this riot. So he gets attacked, and Paul is actually going to be saved by Roman soldiers. And you have to really kind of understand what this is like for Roman soldiers at this time. In America today, we have soldiers in different places of the world keeping peace. Yes, some of them are are dummies, and you see that on Facebook or the news, but most of our soldiers do a really, really good job. But it's pretty difficult for them because they're in these places they may never have even heard of until they sign the dotted line. And they're in these places with all these political things trying to keep peace, and they don't know all the nuances. Well, this is the same thing that happens to these Roman soldiers in Israel at this time. There's all these politics all over the place, and they've got to navigate that. And they never know what's going to happen. So part of what they do to navigate this outside of the Temple Mount is they build this thing called the Antonia Fortress. Now, here's a picture of what this looks like. The Temple Mount is simply massive. It's massive. And on the side of that, where those four pillars are, that's the Antonia Fortress. There's a garrison of Roman soldiers soldiers in there. This is for a couple of different reasons. Number one, control. They wanted people to know, we're Rome, we're in control, this is where we are, don't jack with us. But the other thing is for safety, because sometimes certain things would happen on the Temple Mount where riots or fights would break out, and they'd have to go in and stop it. And this is what happens to Paul. They see Paul getting beat up, and they run out there to try and help whoever this guy is. Now, there's a guy that's named a tribune, and the tribune is in charge of all of these soldiers. And nothing in the world could prepare any tribune 
Tribune for political and religious life in Israel at that time. The Tribune looks out. He sees this riot taking place, a battered victim. We know it's Paul. He doesn't. So he runs out to try and find out what's going on. And people just don't stop beating up Paul. So he wraps Paul in chains, which will kind of be how Paul lives the rest of the book of Acts. And they bring him up to the barracks, up these steps. So open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. And this is kind of where we take off from there. And what Luke keeps trying to show here is that the mob is trying to kill Paul because of false charges. Uh, that's all this Paul is disloyal to who we are, and Paul has never been disloyal to Jewish customs at all. Again, the Roman soldiers rescue him, and Luke, by telling you that, is not trying to suck up to Rome, but simply state that if anybody would have just given Paul the time to speak, cooler heads might have prevailed, and it might have not gotten that bad. And this could really go for any conversation we have today, whether it's political or COVID-related or religious. If we just calm down sometimes, and we can have a conversation and try to understand one another, things can go a little bit better. Paul is where he is in this moment, and where he tends to go, riots tend to break break out. But that is always because Paul is loyal and true to the gospel. Uh, the gospel is extraordinary, and sometimes it can be dangerous for us. But God brings about his purposes in whatever takes place. This is all a reminder that the creator God will one day call the whole world to account, and he will use everything for his purposes in the meantime. So Acts chapter 1, verse 37, this is where we left off last week. They're trundling Paul up into the barracks. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he, that's the tribune, said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? (laughs) I'm thinking Paul's like, No, sounds like a video game. Sounds kind of cool. But no, I'm not that guy. Paul replies, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. So this tribune is most likely shocked that Paul is speaking good, educated, stylish Greek. The tribune most likely is an aristocrat working in this position, trying to work his way up to get a better position somewhere else. And so he recognizes good Greek when he hears it. Like if you ended up in the middle of Mexico City or Yemen in the drunk tank and some guard walks by and starts talking to you in perfect California American without any hint of an accent, you'd be like... Well, well that's, that's different. They assumed Paul was a hoodlum, because only hoodlums would get beat up in the middle of the temple. Hence the question about being the Egyptian. Nobody knows who the Egyptian was, but it was common during that time to just think that anybody who was a rabble-rouser in Israel was an Egyptian. They're wild, they're unlettered, they don't know how, how to read. So Paul's like, look, I am not that guy. He also doesn't tell the tribune he's a Roman citizen yet. He will do that next week. But if he told them he was a Roman citizen, they would have taken him into the barracks to keep him safe. So what Paul instead says is another truth, that he is a citizen of Tarsus and Cilicia. Now, that is not a trivial place. It was an educated city with an educated populace. And what you are seeing Paul do here is use every means to be able to speak to the crowds of what God is doing in his life and why he was there. Acts 21, verse 40. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, so chapter 22, verse 1 now, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. 
And this is what you've got to love about Paul. He keeps everybody on their toes. After talking to the tribune in Greek, he now switches seamlessly to speak to the crowd in Hebrew without missing a beat. Uh, it's probably Aramaic, which is the current form of Hebrew at that time. So they hear him speak not the language of the Gentiles, but the language of their ancestors, of their forefathers, and they quiet down and listen. Now for us, Luke is going to make a risky choice here, because now Paul is going to tell his testimony again. And as for American readers, we get bored reading or watching the same thing over and over and over. But Luke is doing this for a purpose. He wants you to understand Paul's story, because Paul will tell it again in Acts 26, but when he tells it's there, he's talking to some Gentiles, and he'll tell it a bit different. And you see how Paul keeps using this story to reach the people just where he is, and we can understand better what Paul's story means. So, Acts 22, verse 2. And he, that's Paul, said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, and that way is Christianity. They called it the way. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From then, them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Can you imagine anybody being punished for the things that they believe? Hmm, how about that? You get important details in this here. So Tarsus is his birthplace. But he is brought up in Jerusalem as a disciple of this guy named Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel is one of the most respected rabbis of the day, and even for a couple centuries after his death. In Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel will talk to the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, and he will say they should stop attacking Christians because they may be attacking God himself, which is what Jesus says to Paul when he meets him on that road to Damascus and saves him. Verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven shone, uh, suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, Paul is a guy who knows the Mosaic law in and out. And he wants them to understand, I was where you are, zealous for God, zealous for the law. I am righteously indignant about anybody who would take that law and try and make it less than it was. So Paul compliments their zealousness. But then he does what he also does in Galatians and Philippians, is he cites how he had persecuted the church. Like, you think you guys are persecuting me and wanting to beat me up? I will tell you, I have done more than you guys have done to me today. He adds graphic details, death, bonds, imprisonment. He even calls the high priest and the Jewish ruling council as witnesses for him because they gave him official documents to support his punishment tour on his way through to Damascus. I mean, almost no one in the crowd would have ever spoken to the high priest, much less gotten a commission from them. And they've got to be thinking, why are we beating this guy up again? What's going on here? It's impressive what Paul is saying, and it's meant to be impressive. Paul will then go on to talk about the revelation he gets from God, which is something almost everybody wanted for themselves there, as we still do today. A lot of us say, God, come to my lawn and burn a bush and tell me what you want me to do with my life. That would be amazing. In Audio Slave, Chris Cornell sang this song that says, you gave me a life, now show me how to live. But what if God showed up like he does to Paul? 
It says, you've been running the wrong direction. All your religiosity, all your morality is going the wrong direction. Would we listen to God and would we change? Most of us probably wouldn't. But Paul does. But Paul does. Verse 9, he says, Now those who are with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who are with me and came into Damascus. So what you see is the revelation that Paul gets on the road here is not revelation of more law. It's not revelation of more morality. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, of calling and grace. And again, you've probably heard this story if you've been through Acts at this point a couple times. I mean, Luke's going to tell it even more than that. But Paul, metaphorically, would have these people eating out of his hand, listening, absorbing every word that he says. And again, they're probably questioning why they were trying to beat him up in the first place. Because none of Paul's words sounded like he was trying to steer anybody away from God or the Jewish tradition. Even hearing about Jesus showing up to Paul in this way, that wouldn't turn them off because God can do anything. Some people today have tried to say that Paul probably fell off a horse and smacked his head, and that's why I saw this bright light. He has like some delusion. He didn't really see Jesus. Like One of my favorite writers, a guy named Oliver Sacks, would probably say that. But what you have to see in the text is the what of Paul's belief. He never changed his story. He kept saying the same thing over and over and over. And it is his trust in Jesus because Jesus showed up to him that makes sense of everything else in his life. Many people today, they want to discount Paul and look for any explanation other than the one that Paul himself gives over and over, that Jesus really is alive. And Jesus really can transform our lives from persecutors of the gospel into preachers who advocate the gospel. And the only way that really happens is if Jesus really did show up to Paul. And again, it's why Luke will eventually tell the story three plus times to let you know Paul wasn't delusional. He was acting on God's great love for him. But Paul's not done. He's gone from his deeply Jewish, deeply Orthodox, deeply respected birth, his background, his training, his zeal. And he says, all of this led me to the place where I ran into the Messiah, and lo and behold, it was Jesus. It's kind of funny, because Jesus now has now led him to this place in the middle of this riot where he got beat up. Anyway, verse 12. Paul goes on, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law. So he's still connecting to them with the words that he's saying. Well spoken of by all the Jews who live there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So when he talks about Ananias, he points out to them how devout an Orthodox Jew he was. Ananias is careful to call the Lord, the God of our ancestors, refer to Jesus as the righteous one, which the Messiah would have to be. These are all words filled with overtones that the people there would understand. And if there is anything in Paul's life that didn't honor God, he rises and gets baptized. They would hear, return to God's call in your life. Paul does that. And they have to be thinking, why are we beating this guy up? 
Paul will then speak about returning to the temple for the first time after all this. And this at the point is like decades ago, but Paul talks about his first time going back to the temple. Verse 17, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, that's exactly where he is now, I fell into a trance and saw him, that's Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. See, Paul is saying, I did not come back here to announce that the temple was blasphemous nonsense like rap on a rock station or country on a rap station or cats as pets or something like that. He says, I'm praying there in the temple. And Jesus knew how people were going to accept this testimony of him being the Messiah. So he says, you need to get out of here. And Paul's like, I argue with Jesus. And I said, no, they're going to understand and believe because I'm the one that used to persecute and kill all those Christians. And then Paul will get to this one line. At the end of all this, and this is what sets everyone off. Up to this point, everything is fine. And now Paul will say this, And he, Jesus, said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that's what breaks it right there. That's what breaks it. How dare God send anybody to a people that aren't our people? It it was racism. They couldn't believe and countenance that God would send a Jew to preach to Gentiles about Jesus and inclusion into the people of God. It's unthinkable. And this is why a lot of Jewish people today still reject Jesus. Because Jesus, coming to saving people, is about bringing people into the family of God. And Paul knows the crowd is going to reject it at this point. And I'll show you in a couple minutes how he knows that and why he does what he does. But those words there, they reinforce everything that stirred up the crowd was saying about Paul. They're thinking, he must be telling the Gentiles that God loves them just as they are. Like, imagine the audacity of that. Paul was teaching all the Jews in the world to accept Gentiles into fellowship with them. That they could eat together and learn to do life together. And this would happen purely on the basis of their faith in Jesus. In their minds, this is completely unacceptable. One commentator says that Paul was now, in their minds, as guilty as the Gentiles whose friend he had become, guilty as sin itself. So, Acts 22, verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And this sounds like so much of our debate today that centers around things that we do not like. So many people on both sides of the political aisle will say, oh no, I'm about grace and love and inclusion. But when somebody disagrees with them, they're no longer about grace and love and inclusion. Paul, I think when he sees the Jews here, I think Paul understands that the Jews' view is a very embittered one. Because they have now felt betrayed by one of their best and brightest. Like a few years ago. Actually, more than a few years now, LeBron James was it when it came to basketball. I mean, I'm not even a basketball fan, and I know who LeBron James is. But he was playing for this team called in Cleveland. And Cleveland just loved LeBron James. He was like the Messiah. He could do no wrong. It was ridiculous. And then one day, he decides to sign with another team and leave Cleveland. I mean, who wouldn't want to leave Cleveland? I mean, you've got to ask that question first, right? But he goes to play for another team. And Cleveland is not happy to say the least. When LeBron James's new team comes and plays Cleveland, it is all like boos and jeers. The word Judas is actually thrown around in the middle of it. 
I mean, they felt betrayed. Uh, think about if uh, Trump came out and he supported Biden or Sanders, or Biden or Sanders came out and they supported Trump. Pete, all their supporters would feel betrayed at that point, would they not? But that's just an election cycle. That's just a little basketball history. The Jews had centuries, if not millennia, of being beaten down by these people that they considered to be called the Gentiles. I mean, you've got to crank up that betrayal a thousand times. The Jews, in their minds, felt like they'd been fighting against paganism for centuries and, and millennia, and yet these Gentiles kept oppressing them. They had these stories of exile and shame and foreign rulers doing terrible things to all of their noble heroes. Uh, Even at this time, there are pagan temples that are being built in Israel. And they have all these vile things behind their closed doors of orgies and blood and dead babies. The Gentiles would sing songs that speak of their sinful deeds without remorse, like rock and roll or rap songs seem to do. They would say things where they replace the creator God with either themselves or the heathen gods in God's place. They would mock Israel's pain and their shame at the hands of foreign rulers. God comes to his people. He brings them to a place called Mount Zion. He shows them he is their true king. He shows them their calling as a people. So they go and they build a holy temple that they wanted to be separate from everything else in the grime of the world. Everything that dishonored God. They wanted to push all of the evil outside their country's borders, not realizing that they brought a lot of evil in themselves. And in this temple, the Gentiles come and eventually defile that temple as well. They had built all these boundaries. And now Paul is coming and saying that God is getting rid of those boundaries and those borders and everything that stands in the way of the Gentiles knowing him, of being part of being the children and the family of God. And if you can grab a hint of where these people were and what they've gone through for centuries and what Paul is saying, you might get a little bit of their frustration. Away with such a fellow from the earth where he should not be allowed to live. And if you can pull yourself out of the moment just for a second, you've got to wonder if Paul is like, does it have to be this way? Does it have to be so hard? And a lot of our you know, political discourse today, we sit there and think, does it have to be this hard? See, Paul is a guy who had gone through all of these things that God has taken him through over the last couple of decades. And it brought Paul to a place of maturity in his life where he understood that morality and law doesn't save you. It's it's the gift of grace of Jesus that does. But Paul went through all these things learning that. See, it's, in a sense, he's like the prodigal son. We like to tell this story at Element. It's a parable that Jesus told called the prodigal son. In this story, there's a father who has two sons. The younger son goes to his father and he asks for his inheritance now. This is a way of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. But the dad goes through, he gets inheritance, he gives it to his son. The kid goes off and just squanders all of this with licentious living until it's gone. The kid ends up, after it's all gone, humbled, and he's terrified and probably being abused by the people around him. And he remembers the grace and the love of his father, and he decides, I need to go home. And so he returns to his father in repentance. The kid goes home to his family. As he's coming home, realizing all the stuff he's done, the father sees him a long way off and runs to his son and embraces his son with these open arms. He brings his son home and he throws a feast because his son is now home. Now, there is an older brother in the story, though. And the older brother in the story stayed home. 
He didn't ask for his inheritance. He still worked hard. He didn't run away. And the father never once threw him a party, and he's bitter and angry about it. It's kind of like if you're an AT&T customer, Verizon customer, Dish Network, or Comcast. They're always giving their new customers great deals to come on in. But if you're with them for 10 years, you get to pay the high prices. You're like, ah, you're the older brother. That's how it works. But the father goes outside with his son who is angry. In Luke 15, uh, verses 31 and 32, he says, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Which is true, because everything that is left is that older son's inheritance. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He is lost and is found. See, the people with zeal for the law in Jerusalem are like the older brother. We worked hard. We did all the sacrifices. We went to the temple. And yet, they did not notice and see the love of the Father for them. The grace that He was given. All they saw was duty. And in the end, they left God's call in their life just as much as every Gentile. And in reality, it is Paul who returns home to an understanding of the grace of God and joy that God wants everybody to experience. Now, it's thought that Paul wrote the book of Romans a couple months before he went back into Jerusalem in Acts 21 and 22. So listen to these almost prophetic words that Paul writes. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they are zealous for God, but not on the basis of knowledge. Because they were ignorant of God's righteousness and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law to bring righteousness to everyone who believes. When he says they are ignorant of God's righteousness, it means of what God is doing in the world, of how God is bringing redemption through their own history and ultimately in Jesus himself. That the revelation of all that God is doing is God is being faithful to his own covenant. N.T. writes when he talks about this, he says the Jews are like uh, monkeys who get caught in a monkey trap. How they used to catch... Monkeys, they have a little trap with a goody inside, had a little hole, and monkeys would reach in that little hole and grab the goody and make a fist so they could pull it back out, but they couldn't get their hand back out of the hole because now it's a fist. And he says, this is exactly what the Jews are like here. He says, they will not release their grip on what they already have, the law, and so cannot get free to take the huge, wonderful thing being offered to them, that God is offering them all of that and more. They can actually have fulfillment of the covenant. They can have the final return from exile promised in Deuteronomy 30. They can have the gift of what this law is, not as a book to be studied, but as something that God writes on our hearts as our hearts and lives beat in time with His heart. But it's all a work that God Himself does in the person of Jesus. Because following God and coming into His graces is not about morality. It's not about law. It's not about religion. It's about grace and trust and relationship and how God rescues us. See, Paul is being persecuted for the gospel, the completion of God's story. It's kind of a sad story among his people. But God, in the end, takes upon himself all of the anger, all of the fear, all of the bitterness of all of these centuries, and he makes an end of it all for those who trust his grace. In Romans 10.21, Paul quotes Isaiah 65, verse 2, and says, But as for Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And it makes perfect sense why Paul writes that right before going into Jerusalem. Now, why does Paul give the whole story of what happened to him in his life and then seemingly blow it by knowingly saying, and then God sent me to the Gentiles? Well, this is why. 
Romans 11, verses 13 and 14, Paul says this, I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. Why does he do that? In the hope that I may provoke my own people to jealousy and save some of them. See, Paul says this because he wants his people to be jealous of what the Gentiles are now receiving in God. Not to be angry about it, but be jealous about it. Be like, I want that too. And Paul's like, it's already yours. It's already yours. Trust what God has done for you. Embrace the goodness. Like if Gentiles are brought in, you can be brought in. And what if those zealous people for the law took a moment to realize that the Gentiles were coming to share in their promises and their patriarchs and their covenants and their Messiah? Maybe they'd begin to see what the father says to the older brother. And they would stop being so angry. And they realized maybe instead of sitting out here all, oh, it'd be time to celebrate and smile and have joy and see the point of what God was and is doing. They could join in. Now, you'll see how they actually respond next week, and it's not so great, but that's next week. But the gospel is why Paul makes this attempt, as he carefully sketches out his story, this devout context of his life, and then seemingly blows it all by mentioning the Gentiles. He does it because he has hope of what God will do in their lives. We must have Paul's same hope, because that is what will sustain us in our world today. And all the crazy stuff that's going on, that we have hope of what God can do in the gospel when we speak about it, when we understand it, that we can rejoice like the Father over those who join in His salvation, that it doesn't matter your pedigree or where you're born or your political context or whatever. We don't have to sit outside grumpy saying, we work so hard, because it's not about our morality that we would celebrate with God even in the midst of persecution and trial because we have hope that someone would come to believe. We come to understand the heart of God. And understanding God's heart, we can be people who don't grow weary and we don't fate. We continue to speak of God's grace and His call to everyone just like Paul. Yes, many people, when they come to trust Jesus, they don't know anything, right? But instead of being angry about how to disrupt certain things that make us comfortable or, you know, how they're going to mess up our church services because they're so weird and they show up and don't know anything about God. Well, how about instead we learn to celebrate with God? How about instead of being an angry older brother that just wants to place our morality on someone else, we come alongside them like a good older brother would do and to help them to grow. Because what we understand is that God has rescued us as well. We understand that God is calling us to himself. That God has brought us to himself the same way he is going to bring everybody else. And it is all an issue of grace. That God is everything we could ever want and ever need. And we need to set aside all of the preconceived ideas that we have of all the people in the world around us and simply begin to understand and walk in the goodness and the grace of the gospel that God has placed before us. We speak of these things in ways that make sense because God is simply that good. He has been good to us first and we share that goodness with those around us. See, every week at Element, we come to this place where we talk about communion. And communion is meant to be a reminder of what God did. Sometimes we do communion, it seems like, more as ritual than anything else, that we forget what it is and what it means. Communion is where we remember Christ's body that was broken for us. And so you take bread or a cracker, wherever you are, and you drink wine or grape juice or dip it in it or whatever, because that reminds us of his body that was broken and his blood that was shed for us. That God is the one who is true to his covenant. 
that the gospel is Jesus' death that takes away our sin. And this results in his resurrection, which gives us new life, so we can go out and live like sons who have come home in joy, but also come alongside other people as good older brothers who walk alongside them and explain what the gospel truly is and how we live. And I would invite all of you to be those who begin to live that way. I know it's hard. I know it's hard when you want to say, I've been following Jesus and this is what I'm supposed to do and nobody else is living this way. Well, let's stop being older brothers and let's go back to the place where we understand our own salvation and our own grace and our own rescue. And today, if you are maybe stuck in a spiral of of morality and anger at people and you would like someone to pray with you, you know, you can, you can send us an email, connectedourelement.org. And if you'd like one of our elders to contact you or one of our uh, gospel community leaders to contact you and pray with you, they would love to do that. Uh, if you have a prayer request, you can actually write it on the side of the YouTube stream. If you're watching that right now, uh, we'll be able to, uh, to pray with you there. But sometimes it's just good to be able to talk to one another, to walk with one another through the difficult places of life as brothers and sisters that come alongside each other. I mean, at, at Element, you know, we, we take communion, we pray, we, we have offering boxes by our side walls here because we give, and you can give online, but giving is simply a response to what God has done and giving so much to us and rescuing us. So you have that opportunity every single week to, to give as a response to God's generosity to us. But I would encourage you this week, you know, to, to log on to that U version and get some sermon notes. If you have a hard time with the smartphone, send us an email at connectedourelement.org and we will send you a PDF of those sermon notes and begin to ask some of those questions in there to one another. How do we come alongside one another? How do we understand the gospel better? How does that soften our hearts so that we would truly begin to love one another and stop judging one another and just call one another back to the place of our hope that is in the person of Jesus Christ? Our God has stepped into our mess and rescued us just like it rescued Paul, just like it rescued a ton of people in the scriptures, it just still rescues today. Let's trust who he is and what he has said and rejoice because we have salvation and we rejoice when other people are saved as well as we speak of the good news of the gospel to everyone. Let's be those people. Just pray with me. Father, we thank you for being a God who rescues and saves, who takes all of our anger and all of our sin and all of our animosity upon yourself so that we can be renewed and restored and remade back into your image bearers again so we can live out in this world as your hands and feet, as your image bearers, as your people that we would learn to live as your children who walk in the great grace that you have given, that we would understand it so much deeper into our hearts than we ever have. And it would so change us so that we in turn would step out into the world around us to be able to speak of that same great grace, that same hope that we have received. And we ask that in the midst of all of the rescue that we see, we would then rejoice because you have first saved us. And we could rejoice in our own salvation and rejoice what you're doing in the lives around us. That we would be a people so filled with joy because of what you continue to do. Teach us to live for your name in this world. To not lift up ourselves or all of our ideas, but to lift up the gospel 
and your rescue of us and to speak about what that means in the midst of this broken and fallen world we're in right now. That you would take us and use us as your people to speak of that goodness wherever we are. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.